President Harry Truman is credited with making the English idiom famous, if you can't stand the heat, what? Get out of the kitchen. That's exactly right. I'm not sure who first said it. Uh, President Truman credited it to his friend, Harry Vaughn, but I'm not sure Harry Vaughn's the first one to, uh, to actually word it that way. But regardless of its wording, I think the origin of, his, of the intent of that goes all the way back to the episode in chapter 3 of Daniel. Now, another thing as you start into chapter 3, Daniel himself is, is absent from the story which suggests that maybe he was ill at the time or was gone at the time this episode took place. Had he been in Babylon, I am convinced that he would have been with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego since they all shared similar spiritual convictions. That's why I've concluded that chapter 3 took place during the winter season when Daniel was on vacation in Florida. <laughs> so let's take a look at the... I don't have proof of that, but that, just a theory... Let's take a look at the first couple of verses of Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. <laughs> My, how quickly we forget. Now, we're not given a time frame when the story of chapter 2 ends and the story of chapter 3 begins. Uh, most historians think that they happen relatively close together because this golden statue image probably grew out of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, had that was the heartbeat of chapter 2 because after all, Babylon was the golden head of the statue. Now you remember the message of the statue, right? In the dream, you had uh, a, a head of gold, a chest of silver, you had thighs of bronze and legs of iron. They were descriptive of sort four sequential kingdoms, starting with Babylon, uh, and, and then the Medes and the Persians, and then Greece, and, and, and then the Roman Empire. But the heartbeat of the story was not about these kingdoms. The heartbeat was about this rock that was carved out of the mountain that came tumbling down the mountain and actually crushed the statue, because God was saying, kingdoms will rise and fall, but my kingdom will last forever. I am the God of that kingdom. And so you have this whole concept here that the king has either forgotten or completely missed. And he's thinking, I like this picture of me being the gold. So let's build this statue out in the, in the plains there. And it was 90 feet high and 9 feet thick. Uh, some think it was merely an obelisk-looking thing, like, much like the Washington Monument in D.C. Others think it was actually a statue in the image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that it was something that the people were called upon to worship. I think the king may have done this for another reason. I think he was perhaps attempting to unite or unify all of the various peoples that were in Babylon at this time. The more lands they conquered, the more foreigners they brought in, and everybody brought their own gods and culture. And this was one thing that the king could have everybody doing together. It's amazing what we choose to remember and what we choose to forget. God was trying to tell the king, you won't last forever, but my kingdom will. What you do, you do to honor me. Somehow that got lost in the translation, and Nebuchadnezzar thought, I'm the head of gold. Let's celebrate me. Isn't that just like us? We hear what we want to hear, and we forget what we want to forget. We remember what we want to remember. Consequently, we're really good at rationalizing the things that we want to do and rationalizing not doing the things that we don't want to do. 
How often have we accused our children of having selective hearing or selective memory? And we adults aren't much better when it comes to that. When uh, Elsie's younger sister Sally was in elementary school, she one time told the teacher, sometimes my ears say yes and sometimes my ears say no. <laughs> we adults do the same thing. I don't know if you've seen any of the, or heard any about the trial of Jody Aris on, on TV. If you turn on the news, you're bound to hear some kind of an update. And, and the interesting thing is that for nine days while on the stand, being interviewed by her defense team, she could remember every detail. But when the prosecution took over, she couldn't hardly remember any details. The prosecutor even accused her of having selective memory and asked her, what is it that triggers such selective memory? And I would ask you this morning, what triggers your selective memory and your choices? Is it because you, you kind of know God's Word and kind of don't? We need to be vigilant in studying God's Word because our memories are weak. And a casual knowledge, a casual knowledge of God's Word can be a dangerous thing because we can know enough maybe to twist it in ways that we want to twist it to justify behavior that we want to justify. Be honest with yourself and God before you proceed with any decision that you need to make. Find out what God's Word has to say about it so that you don't make some disastrous decision that changes your life forever. Did you ever get lost while you were driving? Don't, don't, don't raise your hands. I'm not asking for a show of hands. I'm just wondering, did you ever get lost when you were driving? Can I tell you that when you finally admitted you were lost is not when you first got lost? Okay, here's the deal. You got lost the first wrong turn you made. That's when you were lost. The first wrong turn, because after you make the first wrong turn, all the rest of the wrong turns are easy to make, and finally you get to a place where you say, I, I, I don't know where I am. Know the Word of God. Be vigilant to study the Word of God so that you know what the truth is, so that when it comes to making choices, you won't make the wrong turn, because once you make the wrong turn, all the rest of the wrong turns come easy. Okay, back to the story. The statue was completed. So far, no big deal. Uh, Babylon was a land of excessive idolatry. So one more idol to worship, no big deal. However, on the day of its dedication, everything changed. This is the mandate that the king's herald clearly set forth, uh, beginning in verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, as far as we know, this is the first time anything like this has happened in Babylon. And for an idolater, again, no big deal. If I'm an idol worshiper, then adding one more idol to the list is no problem. But if you're like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you believe that there is only one God, and it is that one God before, before whom you bow and before whom you worship, then you've got a real problem. They find themselves in a compromising position. To bow would be idolatry. Not to bow would be treason. What to do? Well, may I suggest that what they did 
is good for us to know and to learn and to follow their example because how they handled it is how we should handle the difficult times of our life. Here's the first thing I want you to remember. Stand your ground. Stand your ground. All of the important people in Babylon were there. This was the who's who of the kingdom. It was a red carpet event. It was a black tie moment. Name dropping on this occasion would have been futile since any any name worth dropping had already been dropped because they had come to here. I mean, all all the biggies were there. I mean, this was one huge deal. After the instructions and the consequences had been laid out, the music began and everybody falls to their knees and bows forward toward the golden image except for three young Hebrew men who stood out like sore thumbs in a crowd who were on their face on the ground. Now, I've thought about that. These young men, had, you know, it would have been so easy to rationalize bowing with everybody else. I mean, they're hundreds of miles away from home. Who else is going to see? this? They are a part of this elite group that is there. Daniel must not have been present, so Daniel's not here to see, and Daniel's not here to make a difference. If we bow down, who will know? After all, I'm not changing what I believe in my heart. If I simply bow on the outside, I can still worship God on the inside. No doesn't work that way. But that's the way we often think, we think it will work. I mean, you know, I, I, can, I can bow on the outside, but I'll still be faithful to God on the inside. Reminds me of a little boy in church who uh, moved down the pew from where his mom was sitting. He just kept inching away, and then he stood up in the pew. And his mom said, sit down, softly, and waved like that. And he shook his head no, and she said, sit down, and went like this, you know, waved at him. And he said no, and so Mother scooted down the pew, grabbed him by the shoulder, and sat him down in the pew. And he looked up her and glared and whispered, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. (laughs) Sometimes we think that's okay. Okay, I can bow on the outside, but Lord, I'll be standing up for you on the inside. Here's why that doesn't work. It's because only God knows your heart. Nobody else does. They don't know what's going on on the inside of you. They can only judge by your outward deeds. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. Fruit's not internal, it's external. And so when you bow in a crowd like that, everybody just assumes you're one of us. When you stay standing, everybody knows who you're standing with and who you're standing for. I encourage you to stand your ground. Don't compromise what is eternally invaluable simply to avoid temporary embarrassment, exclusion, or maybe even death. Someday, we will stand before the God of the universe who spared no expense to purchase our salvation. Do you think you can justify to him that you turned your back on your faith to avoid an uncomfortable moment when he had given everything to see that you get there. This is a broken, temporary world. Do not make your choices based on the brokenness of this world. Make your choices. Take your stand when it affects the eternal life that God has given you. Here's the next thing. Be courageous. Stand your ground and then be courageous. Now, without missing a beat at this moment, some of the astrologers hurry off to the king to snitch on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They weren't bowing. King needed to know that. 
I suspect, I, again, it's a theory, but I suspect they had been watching all along. As a matter of fact, I'm not so sure about what some of the king's advisors hadn't gone to Nebuchadnezzar and said, you know what, king, after that dream you had, this would be a great time to put up a statue of gold and make everybody worship it and everybody bow to it. And in the back of their minds thinking, I know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they, they won't bow. This is a way we can get rid of them and take their jobs and their roles as governor. I deserve that more than they do anyway. I was born in Babylon. Let me step up into that role. I think that may have been what was going on, which is why they were watching. Be courageous. You realize what's going on here? Stay with me. If you're down on your knees and then you drop to your face on the ground and you're staring at, or you started in the position of bowing toward that golden statue, how are you going to know that somebody else is standing? How can you see that anybody else is standing? Did your, did your kids ever do this after a prayer at, at, at a mealtime? The minute the amen is offered, one of them says, she had her eyes open during the prayer without realizing that you had to have your eyes open during the prayer in order to see that she had her eyes open. You're, you know, you're, this is what's going on here, I think. These astrologers are not so much dedicated to their worship. They're not so much honoring the king. They're watching to see what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to do. And if they can catch them in the crime, they can get rid of them once and for all. The king was furious. He called them into his presence. He spelled out the command one more time, and he spelled out the consequences again for failing to keep it, and he gave them an oper another opportunity. He said, okay, here's second chance. Next time you hear the music, down, boys. You know, get down on your knees. And, and this, is, this is one of my favorite parts in the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't wait for the music to start. They just responded to the king, and this is what they said in verse 16. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Oh, wow. You think there was any question in their mind? Do you think they were calling the king's bluff? They knew the king would not back down. They knew that this was a death sentence. They were, they were basically saying, you might as well just go ahead and throw us into the furnace because we aren't changing however, however many times that music plays. We will not worship that image. I'd like to think, if I were in the same set of circumstances, that I would be so bold. But i got to be honest with you. I don't know if I would be. I suspect you don't know if you would be. I've never been called to put my life on the line for my faith. Courage, however, is still required of us. G.K. Chesterton wrote, Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. Because of my lifelong interest in aviation, one of my childhood American heroes was Eddie Rickenbacker. He said this, he said, courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. Now, most of us, however, are seldom faced with the choice of death. But courage is still required of us on a daily basis. Mark Twain wrote this, it is curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage so rare. 
Therein, folks, lies what I believe the greatest call to courage in our day, moral courage. No one likes to be ridiculed or looked down upon or dismissed because he or she is out of step with culture around us. And as our society moves ever farther away from the time-tested moral values established by God, it will require even greater courage to live what you believe when it's no longer popular. When your boss demands that you do something dishonest, and you know your job is on the line if you don't do it, what will you do? When an attractive co-worker suggests that the two of you could spend some intimate time together and no one would have to know, what will you choose to do? When the office chatter is gossip about somebody else who works in the building, will you participate or not? What will you choose to do? When you're traveling alone for your company and no one will know what adult movie you watch in your hotel room all alone, what will you choose to do? Every day we are challenged to be moral people. Your life may not be on the line, but your character and your integrity certainly are. Your moral and spiritual courage must be equal to that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, there are a lot of people in this world who are just like those Babylonian astrologers. They're watching. They know who you claim to be. They know the fact that probably you go to church. They're watching to see if you'll act and live what you say you are. And when you bow and compromise your faith, your reputation dies. You may not physically die, but your reputation dies. So be courageous. Stand your ground. And then thirdly and lastly, endure faithfully. Let, let me give you one more thing about the courage before I go on to this last one, okay? Um, I ran across uh, a portion of a letter uh, written by a chaplain during World War II. His name is Stuttered Kennedy. Um, he was often in the front lines of the battle, and when the troops were moving across uh, France, he had just a few moments in which he wrote a letter to his 10-year-old boy at home. And part of his letter included this. He said, the first prayer I want my son to learn to say for me is not, God keep daddy safe, but God make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Son, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. I suppose you would like to, be, to put in a bit about safety too, and mother would like that, I'm sure. Well, put it in afterwards, for it really doesn't matter nearly as much as doing what is right. That's a powerful letter. That is a godly man who can say, pray that I'll do the right thing. But that's the courage that God calls us to. If we're going to endure faithfully, we've got to have the courage that says, Doing what is right is more important than life or death. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is so utterly angry at this point in time that he has the furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. I don't know about you, but I think Nebuchadnezzar has anger issues. Does anybody else think, think so? I mean, he, didn't, he was just he was furious. I mean, these, these two guys, these three guys stood him down. They, they, they said, we're not going to do it. They're talking to the king, the, the king of the greatest country in the world at that time. And, and, and his anger said, 
You think it's hot. I'm going to heat it seven times hotter. Now, now this is not a furnace like heats your house during the wintertime and the cool of the fall. This is probably more like a brick kiln. Uh, well, those domed kinds of things that gets real hot that can, that can take the clay and dry it into the hardness of a brick. Um, I grew up in Huntingburg, Indiana, down, down the road here in Dubois County. And when I was growing up, we still had brick kilns in Huntingburg. And a lot of bricks had been made through the years. But these are, those dome structures that got really intensely hot so that it would make bricks that could be used for building. I think this is what you're, you're looking at here. This is a brick furnace, a, a brick kiln. And in the top is a hole where the king can look down and see. And I'm assuming they had some kind of a way to get out to that hole, uh, you know, a gangplank or something of that nature. And, uh, and so he binds them and ties them up and has soldiers take them out to drop them into the fire. And when the soldiers drop them through the hole into the fire, the, the, the heat is so intense that the soldiers die. And, and then look what happened next. Verse 25. He said, and, and that's, this is the king. King said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And, and the fourth, the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps and prefects and governors and royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was not even the smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. Now listen, for no other god can save in this way. What I treasure most about that story is not the fact that God actually intervened and saved them. I mean, that's, that's great. I love the fact that it, but that's not my favorite part of the story. My favorite part of the story isn't the fact that they didn't smell like smoke or, or that the king himself came to believe again or, or, or that other people were now under the consequence of speaking out against God. All those are good things. My favorite part of the story is this. There were not three in the furnace, but four. It was the fact that, that God didn't just miraculously lift them out of the fire or, or, or kept them from burning up until the fire died down. It was the fact that God went into the fire with them and walked with them and talked with them and that God was right there with them through the worst ordeal of their lives. That's my favorite part of the story because it reminds me that while I may not come out of the fire, I won't go in alone and I won't die alone. In the tough times of life, in the moments that are most challenging, you don't go through them alone. God goes with you. Now, you, like I said, you may not come out on the other side. I mean, not all of the stories in the Bible are so positive as this. As a matter of fact, there are more negative outcomes than positive outcomes. 
In the, in the early church, many died for their faith. Look at the leaders. James was the first. He was beheaded. Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during a missionary trip there to spread the gospel. Throughout church history, the list is long of people who have put their lives on the line. Men like Polycarp and John Huss and Martin Luther, the list is long of people who lost their lives because of their faith. And, and are you aware of the fact that today, right, right today in our world, more Christians die for their faith than any other period of church history? So here's my, here's my point. When you respond with spiritual courage... You may not come out unsinged, but know this for certain. Whatever you endure for the faith, you won't endure it alone. When life in a broken world crumbles in around you and the fire begins to burn, trust me, you won't be there alone. And what God can bring out of the tough, fiery moments is, well, Simply amazing.